We are reminded, our Father, that the psalmist said, I, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications. Therefore, I shall call upon him as long as I live. We are thankful that uh, uh, prayer, and this time of prayer that we do on Wednesday night, we don't do it because it's a ritual. We don't do it because it's in the order of service. We don't do it because it's expected. Um, we, we do it because we love you. We, we, don't, uh, we, we don't pray so that you will know what's going on in our lives. You already know all of that. But we pray because Jesus told us to pray. And, and really, prayer is for us. Prayer gets us focused. Prayer makes us mindful. And, and, and we all do this at times. We pray, and it's just rote, and it's random, and we're really not thinking about what we're praying. We'll say a, a quick prayer before dinner sometimes and not really give it a lot of thought. We've all done that. We've all been guilty of that. But we don't want to be doing that out of habit. We don't want to make that the norm in our lives. We, we want to express our hearts to you. We, we want to express what's going on in our innermost being and in our gut. We, we, we need you. That's the essence of why we're praying. We, we need you. We, we need you for everything. Not some things. We need you for everything. And some of us tonight are probably more acutely aware of how much we need you than some other guys. Just because of where we are in life. When the bottom drops out, when we're in crisis, when we're in uh, tremendous difficulty, we have a great sense of need and dependence. And we're aware that we need you. And other times we kind of walk through life like we got it handled and we got most of it covered, but we never do. We don't want to play church. We don't want to play Baptist or Methodist or Bible church or any of these other things. We don't want to play anything. This is life. It's real, it's serious, it's for keeps, it's for eternity. We want to stay grounded. We want to keep our feet on the ground. When everything's falling apart around us, we'd like to have that peace which passes all understanding that only comes from you and knowing you and knowing who you are and what you are up to. So tonight we would ask that uh, you'd get our feet on the ground. If, if we've not been mindful of you for a while, make us mindful. Get us back where we need to be. And for those guys that are hurting deeply, well, Lord, you're near to the brokenhearted. You save those who are crushed in spirit. For the guys that are there right now, May they have a tremendous awareness of your presence and the fact that you're with them and they're not by themselves. Underneath are the everlasting arms. You won't let them fall. You won't let them go. Help us tonight to see the big picture of our lives. Help us, to get a, uh, help us to get a viewpoint, maybe, that we haven't had for a while. Give us a perspective, Lord, that is your perspective. Give us a perspective that will encourage us and recalibrate us and get us square with reality. And when we get square with you and with reality and what's really going on and what you're doing, it settles us and calms us and gives us confidence to move ahead even when we're lacking it. We're just asking you to give us what we need tonight so that this wouldn't be a wasted effort. 
we're asking you to come through for us once again. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are back to the book of Boaz, which does not exist, but that has not stopped us yet. But the book of Ruth does, so we're going to the book of Ruth. We're in chapter 2 tonight. What I want to do tonight, uh, as we're in chapter 2, and we got into this last night, what I want to do is read a, a section of Scripture that we actually touched on last week. I want to read it, and then what I want to do is I want to hit, um, I want to hit pause. I want to hit freeze frame. Uh, I want to, you know, one of the great inventions out there is TiVo. For me, it's been life-changing. Uh, I'll tell you what I do now. Uh, even if I'm home and I'm there when a game starts, that's of interest. And uh, a lot of them are of interest, to be quite honest with you. Uh, I, don't always, I, I, don't usually, I don't usually just sit down anymore and just watch it. I wait about 20 minutes. And then I start going through it, because if you do that, you can just run through all the commercials. And uh, that's, that's pretty good. Uh, I like that pause button, because you're watching something, and, you know, you just pause and go do what you need to do. Anyway, you can tell it's had a great impact on my life personally. <laughs> that's what I want to do with this passage tonight. And, and if you've been with us, you know the story. Uh, the book of Ruth, who's Ruth? Well, to understand who Ruth is, you've got to start in the opening chapter, and there's a family. The husband is Elimelech. The wife is Naomi. They have two sons. They're from Bethlehem. They leave Bethlehem to go to Moab, which is a foreign nation, foreign gods against Israel. They never should have gone, but there was a famine. This guy was not a spiritual leader. He was just interested in his own financial well-being. He tries to escape the difficulty and the affliction. So he takes his Krugerrands and he takes his, you know, offshore accounts and all this. And he goes to Moab. He thinks he's pretty slick. And he's got a plan. He's going to be there a short time. But what happens is uh, his plan doesn't quite work. Uh, his family actually stays there 10 years. Uh, something he didn't factor in was that he would go there and die. A lot of guys tend not to factor in death. It's probably a good idea to factor in death. Uh, when you do your financial planning, factor in death. You're going to die. You're not going to be here forever. And I know they have those retirement ads on TV. And those guys on TV that do the retirement ads that are 65, they're always in great shape. They're always a perfect weight. I hate those guys. <laughs> and their wives look like a million bucks. Their wives look like they're 29. But they're supposed to be 65. And they've done everything perfectly to get ready for retirement. They're the perfect weight. Their blood pressure's normal. Everything's good. They got all the investments. They got a piece of the rock. They got this. They got that. They have done, it's all, they've done it right. But the fact is, there's nobody in the world like that. And even if you have done it right, and see, Elimelech was one of those guys that could have put one of those retirement ads. He was way ahead of the curve, and he's got his plan, and he's working the plan. But see, and he went to Moab, I'll get out of this, I'll escape the, you know, this bad economy and all this. But, but see, he, didn't, he got over there and he died. See, you're, you're, you're going to die. And, and see, your retirement, your financial planning should always factor in. So have, you, have you thought about retirement? Have you factored in retirement? They'll show you the tables and how much you need to sp save and all this to retire at your certain level of income. You know, you know how many? Okay. If you're really going to do good financial planning, factor in what's going to happen after you die. Now, that's planning. The other stuff is building your house on the sand. The other house is, uh, the other part is just really foolishness. If you haven't factored in uh, your plan after you die, you're not real bright. 
I don't, I don't care how many degrees you have, and I don't care what your SAT score was, and I don't care what your net worth is. So I'm looking this week, because I subscribe to Forbes, I'm reading the Forbes 400. Uh, richest uh, people in the world. I'm just turning the page, reading through, getting depressed. <laughs> Actually, I didn't get depressed. I'm just flipping through it, looking at it. And you know what hit me as I'm reading all these guys? and their investments and how they made it and all this, and I'm looking at their ages. They're all going to die. And you know what else? They're all going to die soon. Soon. I don't care if you get up at 5 a.m. and work out. If you're 83, you're going to die soon. Once again, how else can I encourage you? You're going to die. You're going to die. And that, oh, and, and that's going to, and, and you will not go out of existence. You don't like your life? You're frustrated? You're, you're oh, I don't, I just, I don't want to go on living. Well, guess what? You, you, you kill yourself, as I almost just did. <laughs> you go ahead and kill yourself, guess what? You don't go out of existence. You continue to live. Uh, Elimelech didn't factor in the fact he was going to die. Not only did he die, his two sons died. They had married two young Moabite women. Uh, so now you've got three widows. That's chapter one. Uh, one of the gals remains in Moab, the godless culture, the godless nation. A young woman named Ruth embraces the one true God, Yahweh, and says to her mother-in-law, Naomi, as Naomi goes back to her homeland, to Israel, to Bethlehem, uh, she says, where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. And so here this young woman, how old was she? Well, we don't know. But it was not unusual back then for girls to marry at 15 or 16 or 17. We don't have any details as to when her husband died. Uh, we don't know that, but I mean, it's, it's fair to say here is a young widow that could have been very easily around 20, early 20s, mid-20s would be a stretch. Probably right around 20-ish. That would fit. So now, um, headed back to, headed back to uh, Bethlehem. And then we got into chapter 2 because that's when this guy Boaz shows up. Everything changes when Boaz comes into the picture. And as we've said, Boaz is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he does in our lives. However, we need to say this, Boaz was a real historical figure. Uh, you'll meet him in heaven. He lived. Uh, these are not stories. These are not myths uh, in the Old Testament. Adam was a real historical figure. He lived. Uh, he had a wife named Eve. I'm getting ahead of myself. He said, well, you don't really believe that. Yeah, I really actually do believe it. He said, well, you need to get educated. Well, I'm educated beyond my intelligence, as Howard Hendricks used to say. I, I, no, hey, guys, you know what? This book's either true or it isn't. Jonah was a real historical figure. You can go to seminaries, they'll tell you Jonah is just a metaphor. He's not a metaphor, he was a real guy. Uh, these things were written for our instruction. The story of Boaz was written for our instruction. So now here's what happens. You get into chapter 2, and they're trying to survive, and um, these two women, these two widows, Naomi and Ruth, and in order to survive, Ruth, who's the young gal, she goes into the field, it's barley season. If you look at chapter 1, the last verse, it says they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And the good news about that is they're going to get some food, they're going to get the grain, and that she'll pick it all day and, and reap it, and then at night they'll beat it out, and then they'll get their stuff, and they'll cook it up, and that's how they're going to survive. I mean, they're living on, um, they're living from day to day, they're living from hour to hour. And what happens is, as you get into chapter 2, uh, she goes to glean uh, the fields, as we've gone over this several times now. When they would harvest the fields, uh, God said, 
said to the landowners, you don't harvest the entire field, but you leave the corners. Why, why would you not take it all? You leave the corners for the orphan, for the alien, and for the widow. So this young woman is going to glean from the edges of the field so that she can get food, and uh, along with Naomi, she can live. That's how they're going to be sustained. So that's Ruth chapter 2. And um, what happens is, she, as you look at Ruth chapter 2, it says in verse 3, So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. Uh, we mentioned last week, they, uh, the land was, was given to tribes, so you'd, you'd have huge sections, uh, hundreds of square miles of, uh, of land that was given to a tribe. And then within the tribe, certain families would have certain, and they didn't have fences, they didn't have white fences with the gates and, you know, all that stuff. They didn't have barbed wire. All they had were just on the boundaries, on the corners, they would just have a small pile of stones. So a woman who's here for the first time doesn't understand what's going on. She just sees the massive field. She goes out to the field, and, and you know, she just goes out there and starts gleaning. Well, she just happened to land on the field of Boaz, who was a distant relative of Elimelech, who was Naomi's deceased husband. And that has all kinds of implications we haven't even gotten into yet. But she just happened on that field, to that particular field. Uh, as far as she was concerned, she just happened. Uh, or as the scripture says, uh, uh, she chanced upon chance. And it's ironic because there was no chance. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't just circumstance. Uh, she was led there by the Lord. And something occurred as she went to that field. Um, so she's in the field of Boaz. Then you look at verse 4. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. So he's in Bethlehem. He gets up in the morning, and he comes out to the fields. Why does he come out to the fields? Because it's, it's harvest time. Um, he said to the reapers, may the Lord be with you. They said to him, may the Lord bless you. And the Lord's about to bless him, and he doesn't know it. He just thinks it's an average day, just like any other day. But he's about to have the greatest blessing of his life on that particular day that's just a normal day like any other day. But he doesn't know. See, you never know when God's going to show up. You never know. Okay? And he's in the field. You know, he's got his coffee. He's looking around, talking to the guys. You know, they're just... And, he's, and he looks around in the, verse 5. Boaz said to a servant who was in charge of the reapers, uh, uh, whose young woman is this? Who's this gal? I haven't seen her around before. The servant in charge of the reapers replied, she's the young Moabite woman who returned from, uh, with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. So here's a meeting. This guy comes to work. She comes to get some food to survive. Um, they just happen to come to the same place. Verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, here's their conversation. This is going to change his life and he doesn't know it. Boaz said to Ruth, listen carefully, my daughter. Why would he say my daughter? Because that uh, term indicates there was a disparity of age. You say, how much of a disparity of age? I don't know. But when he says my daughter, she was young enough to be his daughter. So how old was he? If she's somewhere around 20? Well, he wasn't 25. He wasn't 30. He was probably somewhere, and do we know for sure, and can we prove it? But ballpark it, probably 40-ish, somewhere in there. Okay? All right. Boaz said to Ruth, listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go from this one. Stay here with my maids. It was a very gracious thing. As we looked at last week, women during this time, especially this was the time of the judges, if you look at chapter 1, verse 1, and the time of the judges was a time of anarchy and chaos and uh, moral deterioration that got worse and worse and worse. And the Bible says in the book of Judges, every man did what was right in his own eyes. There was no law. There was no morality. They ignored the truth of God. So women were very vulnerable. He said, listen carefully. Don't glean in another field. Do not go from this one. Stay here with my maids. The maids were the young women in his employment. The reapers would reap. You know, they got their, uh, what do you call those things with the round scythe? 
They're out there, you know, just going for it. And then those gals would come along behind them and they'd gather up those stalks and they'd take twine and they'd tie them up. And that's where you get the sheaves. You know, you've seen that. And, and he says, hey, you stay in my field. You stay with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I've commanded the servants not to touch you. Another, he's protecting. Leave her alone. Don't bother her. Don't give her a hard time. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. That was a tremendous blessing. She didn't have to go somewhere else to find water because she had nothing. Verse 10, then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me uh, since I am a foreigner? Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, and how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward you, uh, may the Lord reward your work, and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. She said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. There's a, there's a section in verse 12. I want you to see this. He says to her, and, and he says it to her genuinely, what he doesn't know is that the Lord is going to use him to fulfill this in her life. And the Lord is going to use her to fulfill it in his life. This is their first meeting. They're in a field. They're interacting. First time conversation. And what does he say to her? Watch this. May the Lord reward your work. Number two, and your wages be full from the Lord because she's destitute and doesn't have anything. The God of Israel, watch this, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. See, she sought after not just Naomi, she sought after the God of Naomi. There was great significance there. Um, Now here's what I want to do. At this point, I want to freeze frame the story. And you say, well, I was here last week when we went over this. Yeah, I know, but I want to glean a little more out of this. We're going to freeze frame it right here. And I want you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. Um, I want to make an observation about what we just read. They met in the field, they met in Boaz's field. It, uh, it was just a normal day. Um, she was trying to survive. He was coming out to oversee the reapers. That's his business. That's his livelihood. He's just showing up for work. So much of our lives are just daily. So what did you do today? Probably what you did yesterday. You get up, you go to work. Uh, Sometimes what you do is significant, other times it's not significant. Um, Sometimes you're challenged, sometimes you're not challenged. Um, Same old, same old. So much of life is just repeating the same thing over and over again. Uh, Life is not one big video game. Life is not one big, uh, you you know, uh, epic drama movie blockbuster. Life is pretty much same-o, same-o, over and over again. You get up, you go to work, you do what you're supposed to do. Uh, Sometimes you have good stuff, sometimes you have bad stuff. Uh, you're trying to work things out, you go home, you know, maybe you're worn out, you watch a little ball game, you watch a little whatever, and then, you know, you hit the rack. And then you get up the next morning, what do you do? You do it all over again. That's life. As we're dealing with life, how'd your day go today? What are you dealing with right now? What's on your radar screen? When you were driving in here today, what were you thinking about? What's the stuff... What's the stuff you're dealing with? What's the stuff that's frustrating you? 
What's the stuff that you can't get your arms around? What's the stuff that is uh, keeping you up at night? It, it might be your health. You've lost the health that you've had all your life. It might be a wayward kid that's acting just insane. Uh, it might be uh, your, your financial situation. You're not sure if you're going to make it this week. You're not sure if you can come up with that mortgage payment. We're all in different places, but life is so daily. It's where we live. It's where we are. It's just the way life is. Now, with that in mind, Colossians chapter 1, because I want to freeze frame this. They're just dealing with their stuff as they meet in this field. Okay? The guy gets up, goes to work, gets his coffee, looks around, talks to the reapers. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Who's that girl? I mean, he didn't know. He just, who, who, who's that? I haven't seen her before. He's just showing up, you see. Okay. Now watch this. Here, let's just read it. Colossians 1.16. This is a great passage. This, this is a tremendous passage because it tells me that my daily life is not same-o, same-o, my daily life is significant and part of God's eternal plan for the ages, and it's a tapestry that He is weaving in your life and my life and the entire world to accomplish His purpose and to bring about His glory, and somehow I'm a part of it and you're a part of it, and He weaves it all in and is in control and oversees the entire process. That's great. And that's a little different perspective. For by him, all things were created. Now, you're not going to get that on the nature channel, are you? If you go take a class at Baylor, you're not going to get that. You say, oh, wait a minute, that's a, that's a Baptist school. Yeah. And if you believe in intelligent design, they won't give you tenure. Something's wrong there. Something's askew. Or you go down to SMU. If John Wesley knew what was going on at SMU, He'd say, change the name of this school. Once again, I just want everybody to like me. <laughs> I'm, but is that not true? He'd be shocked. He'd be throwing those guys out right and left out of that school. Okay? Watch this. For by him, who's him? Christ. For by him, all things were created. Both in the heavens... And on earth. All things were created. All things. You say, well, where's, the, uh, where's Darwin in here? Darwin's not here. Darwin's um, not alive on this earth. He exists, but he's not on this earth. He's died. Darwin does not hold to his theory any longer. Does he? No, he doesn't. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. They keep discovering things. You know, Sir Isaac Newton, this guy Hawking, smartest man in the world, supposedly, who just came out and said, you know, here's why there's no God and there's no creator and all that. He holds the same endowed chair that Sir Isaac Newton held at, um, I think it's Cambridge. But see, when Isaac Newton would study science and make all these discoveries, you know that in two years, two years when the bubonic plague hit London, and then it went on up to Oxford and Cambridge, and they had to close down the schools back in the 1600s. And so they closed down the schools, and Newton went back to his family uh, uh, estate, 
The historians will tell you that science advanced more in two years than it did in the previous hundred. Do you know why? Because he didn't have to go to class and he didn't have to write papers. He was just making discoveries. And he loved to discover. He loved to look at science. He loved to look at it because um, he saw the handiwork of Almighty God. He was just discovering what God had done. That's why he loved it so much. Now watch this. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Oh, this is wild. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. See, even that. Even political administrations. That's why in the book of Daniel, you know, Nebuchadnezzar had the dream. And you had the big statue. And Daniel told him exactly, you know, hey, that, that first part, that's you. Then you got the next empire. Then you got the next one. Then you got the next one. Well, how can that be? Well, because God oversees it all, and Christ created it. Um, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all th- watch this, all things have been created through him and for him. Now watch this. He is before all things, and then watch this. And in him, all things hold together. He holds the world together. All things hold together. Yeah, but we got this, but, but the carbon, we, we got to get the carbon taken care of because it's going to, and if we don't get it taken care of, then the sun is going to, and we're going to, we're all going to die in this Genesis 8. You know what I'm talking about? You guys, you know what I'm talking about. See all this panic, all this, well, the earth was going to be destroyed. Oh, okay, watch this. Uh, Genesis 8.22. Say, so what does this have to do with Boaz? Well, they met in a field. Yeah, all right. Why were they in, let me ask you a question. Why were they, why, why were they in the field? Because it was the beginning of barley harvest. See, every year at the same time, April, May, it's time to harvest the barley. You don't harvest it in January, you harvest in April and May. Well, why is that? Well, because that's how God has ordained things, the God who controls all things. Yeah, they met one day, but it was in the context of the season which God had ordained. Uh, God said to Noah after the worldwide flood, verse 22 of 8, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. That's it. That's it. You can count on it. It's not going to go out of existence until God's plan for the ages is fulfilled. So you don't have to worry about the carbon emission and it all being, you know, okay. Just, just chill out, man. Chill out, eat a cheeseburger. Okay? Okay. Why, 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 here's what I'm trying to say to you. Their lives were so daily. They're just showing up and you say, Steve, you're just milking this. I'm trying to make a point. Our daily life is part of a bigger plan of a sovereign God. And none of it is chance. None of it is random. None of it is accidental. It's all connected. It's part of his plan. That's why you never know when God's going to show up and change things. No matter where you are on that particular day. Okay. Let's go back to Ruth chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. I have a question. Very fundamental question. Very basic question. In Ruth chapter 2. Um, and by the way, I want to go back as we're going there. I want to ask you a question. How, how, how was your day today? How was your day yesterday? How, how, how has this week been for you? Is this a... Is this a good time for you in your life, or is it a bad time for you? 
Uh, we've co quoted the Ecclesiastes passage out of Ecclesiastes 7. Consider the work of God. Who can straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. In the day of adversity, consider. For God has made the one as well as the other. If I've got a choice between prosperity and adversity, guess which one has my vote? We all vote for prosperity, do we not? Because when there's prosperity, we are happy. We're happy, our wives are happy, our kids are happy, our neighbor, everybody's happy when there's prosperity. But the problem with prosperity is you never know when it's going to go away. You see, there are times when God takes the prosperity and he takes the circumstances of my life, which are going so doggone well, and what does he do? He just bends it. He just twists it. That's what he does. He just pretzels it. So we get the other. In the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of uh, adversity, consider for God has made the one as well as the other. You're going to get both. As you go through life, they're in the field. So, uh, uh, here's my question. They met in a field. Here's my other question. Where did they come from? Well, we, we, we know where they came from. Um, it was significant that Ruth was there because, she, as we know from her story, she was not from Israel. She was from Moab. It was significant, that, that is extremely significant, that she was even in Bethlehem at all in a field belonging to Boaz because she wasn't of Israel. She wasn't one of the covenant people. Uh, that's where she came from. She was uh, from Moab. John Phillips writes this about Ruth. He says, Ruth was a Moabitess, a member of an accursed race. She was born and bred in paganism. The gods of her people were fearful, filthy, demon gods. The priests of Moab were powerful and cruel. They served an assortment of gods. But the most feared god of all was Chemosh, Chemosh, who had his terrible place among the gentler gods on a platform of movable stones under which great fires could be kindled. Chemosh's lap was so constructed that little children placed on its red-hot surface would roll down a declined plain into his fiery belly while slaves kept fresh wood and faggots heaped on the hungry fires. That's how they sacrificed their children to Chemosh. That was their religion. That's what they, that was the religion of this girl where she came from. When disaster threatened Moab, plague, famine, the possibility of war, the priest called for another burning. They would come around to the homes to inspect children looking for possible victims, especially firstborn sons. With a red dye obtained from the seashore, they would stain the wrist of designated victims. There was no court of appeal from the priest's decision. Children with stained wrists were doomed to horrible, fiery deaths. That's where she came from. Perhaps when Ruth was a child, she would hear her parents whispering about this, and her heart would be filled with dreadful dreams that would be transformed into nightmares. When Ruth was old enough... To play with the other girls, she heard about another god, actually a fertility, a fertility goddess who offered the Moabites regeneration through the gratification of lust with harlot priestesses in the temple. The fertility of fields and farms, people believed, depended on the sex orgies in the temple. Just as the priests always kept their eyes open for firstborn sons that could be fed to Chemosh, they kept their lustful eyes open for promising young girls who could be conscripted for the foul trade of the temple. Ruth and her little friends doubtless shared the scraps of information they gleaned about these practices. So Ruth grew up a pagan in a land cursed by foulness and ferocity of its gods. While growing up, Ruth would have, just, would, would have been just as haunted by the rumored stories that went on in the temple as by the hair-raising screams that came at times from the idol of Chemosh. That's her background. So what was she doing in the field on that particular day? Where, where did she come from? Oh, this is where she came from. From Moab, that was her God. 
But see, here's what happened to her. She turned away from that God when she found out about the God of Naomi. She found out about Yahweh and she said, I don't want that God. I don't want my family. I don't want that nation. I don't want that life. I want Yahweh. So she followed Yahweh. She turned from the old, turned to him, steps out going to a foreign land where she doesn't know, she doesn't know what's going to happen. They're, 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 and, and again, I don't mean to milk this cow dry, but they don't have a thing. They're just trying to survive. They show up in Bethlehem. It's time for the barley harvest. She finds out, hey, I can go out and glean in the field. She goes out to glean in the field. She's going to get, and she just happens to land right smack in the middle of Boaz. That's why she's there. She was led there by God. She's just trying to get enough to eat. What, what I'm saying to you, she was just trying to survive the day. What I'm trying to point out to you is on a day like any other day, she's just trying to make it. That was a significant day that was part of the eternal plan of Almighty God who governs all things, the seasons, the stars, the, the, uh, the morning, the night, the rain, the drought. What happened in this field on this particular day has impacted and affected every one of us. It hasn't happened yet. She's just had a conversation with this guy. But she's going to marry this guy. They're going to have a son. Then they're going to have a grandson. Then they're going to have a great-grandson, a bunch of them, one of whom is a guy by the name of David. You see, it's all linked, isn't it? And, and God made a covenant with David and said that one of your descendants shall always be on the throne. So you got the genealogies when you get into Matthew, and who is mentioned in the genealogy of Christ? You got Ruth, you got Boaz, and they're just showing up one day in a field. She came from Moab. Now, where did he come from? Are you guys still with me? Is this making, I mean, are you getting this at all, what I'm trying to show you here? See, here's what I'm trying to tell you. I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know what's going on in your life. But I'm telling you, his hand is all over you. And, and, and you may feel as far from God as you've ever felt in your life. And, and you know him, you're a believer, but you just feel distant. And you just, give me something. Get, get, I, I mean, you've had prayer answered before. You've, you've seen God do stuff. But you're just in a dry season, man. That happens at times in the Christian life. It, it, I mean, it's just... And, and see, when that happens, you're walking by sheer faith. You're sure as heck not walking by sight because you got nothing. It's like he's turned off the tap. It's like he's turned off the spigot. You've had times of blessing, but it's like he's just reached down and turned the valve. And you're just gutting it out and you're grinding it up. And you know what you're doing? You can't wait for night to go to bed. And hopefully you'll fall asleep. And then you get up in the morning, and what do you do? Well, here we go again. It's not real exciting. All right, so Boaz. What's going on? So Boaz, he shows up. So Ruth, Ruth's in the field. That's how she got there. How did Boaz get there? Well, he came from Bethlehem. Okay, he owned the field. So you say, well, he's in pretty good shape. He's a landowner. Yeah, and it says he's a wealthy landowner in chapter 2, verse 1. He's a man of substance. He's a man of means. And I went over this last week, but I want to just drive a Mack truck through it. You know where he's coming from? I am telling you, as you read between the lines, there is a gaping hole in his life. There is something missing in his life. There's something missing in his life, and he looks around, and, and friends and family members generally speaking, in his age bracket, they're not missing what he's missing. Sometimes God will not give you what others have. And it's very frustrating to us. You say, he's got it, and he's got it, and he's got it. Why don't I have this? And you have a desire for it, but God has withheld it from you. What I'm referring to, flip over to Psalm 127 
in Psalm 128. Now, you know, Lou Spencer is back there, and Lou, here's what Lou does. You guys don't know this because you can't see, but Lou has time cards for me so that I finish before 1 a.m. And Lou has a card that says 30, which indicates to me that I have 30 minutes. Then he has a card that says 15. Then he has a card that says 5. I usually don't see any of the cards until the one that says 5. So Lou's been trying to figure out, what can I do to get your attention so you'll see the card? Now, Lou, put the card up and then show us the latest invention to help me read the card. <laughs> now, what Lou doesn't know is, with that bland, bl blinding light, yes, I saw the light. But the light is so penetrating, Lou, I cannot read the card. But I'll give you credit, because you're being creative and you've tried. It's 15. Okay. That was funny. I just had to share that with you. Okay. Psalm 127 and Psalm 128. Um, let me get over there. Maybe a familiar psalm or two to you. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early and to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Um, I was reading this week an old article from Sports Illustrated about George Blanda. Some of you guys remember George Blanda. Uh, he was the first guy in the NFL, first quarterback to play well into his 40s. You know, he was kind of the farve. 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Um, he had a long career, played for the Chicago Bears, played for Hallis for a long, long time. And uh, then when, when that finished and Hallis wouldn't give him a raise, they started this new thing called the AFL. And so he signed with Houston and he played with Houston. And then he wound up, uh, and he won a championship with Houston. And then he wound up going to the Raiders. He was with the Raiders for a long, long time. Um, and it was a great article. And he, he you know, and he, he, his brothers always kidded him that he was the third best quarterback in the family. And he was. But see, they, they were, uh, his family was, uh, his dad was an immigrant from one of the Slav countries, you know whatever they call them now, Yugoslav, or now it's something else. You know, you know what I'm talking about. And his dad was a coal miner, and he had six brothers. And they all went on, and they were successful in their different you know, endeavors. But his dad worked the coal mines, and his dad had a rule. I'm the only one who works the mines. I'm the only one. He wasn't going to let any of his boys work the mines. That was it. I mean, he'd knock them around. You're not working in that mine. Don't you think about it. You're going to school. You can play ball, but you're going to school, and you're going to get through college. And I was reading about his dad, and I was so impressed with his dad. His dad really gave up his life so the six boys could have a shot. You know? And so Blanda was an incredibly hard worker. Everybody couldn't believe his work ethic. He said, work ethic? He said, I don't, I don't work. You've got to see my dad. I'm a slugger compared to my dad. You see? That's old school. That's good school. That's being a servant leader. That's laying down your life. His dad would go in early. His dad would work late. His dad would come home, couldn't sleep because he's coughing all night long. Uh, it's vain for you to rise up early and retire late to eat the bread of painful labors. That's what made me think of Blanda's dad. He gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Why was this guy working so hard? Well, look at the next verse. It was for his kids. And Blanda said, we lived in this tiny little 900-square-foot house. There's six, six kids, seven kids, six boys, maybe a daughter, mom and dad. They're all crammed in this little house. He said, we thought life was great. Watch this. Children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. See, we're not so sold on this today. You know why Europe is going to go Muslim? Birth rate. They want to have kids. Why? Well, we don't want to, we love our lifestyle. We have kids, we can't maintain our lifestyle. Okay, fine. 
So who's coming in and who's having the children? So Europe's going to go Muslim. Just a matter of time. I mean, you know this. I mean, it's just an observation. It's just what's happening. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. Really? Yeah. Hey, can I tell you something? Boaz didn't have children. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one youth. You know what you do? You have kids, you raise them up, and you know what you do? They're like arrows in a quiver. You shoot them into the next generation. That's what you do. So, yeah, I raise my kids to know the Lord, and my kids are away from the Lord. Well, how old are they? Oh, they're 25, 30. Well, you know what? The last chapter is yet to be written. Let them go live like that for a while. They'll, they'll wise up. You know? My great-grandmother, my grandmother died at 101, 102. I remember her mother when I was a little boy, four or five years old. I remember Grandma Cox. She's probably 95, 96. She was bedridden. And I'd go in there and... Uh, I, I remember hearing the Bible story that Nana read to me about Jesus, the crippled man, and Jesus told him, rise up and get up, and he got up. And I remember reading that story, and my mom tells me I would go in there and tell her to did up. <laughs> because Jesus made, and she wouldn't did up, so I'd start hitting her leg. It was just my gift of mercy. Uh, when she was in her 90s, she had had 13 children, uh, eight boys, five girls. She would pray continuously for her sons because none of her sons knew Christ. These guys are 60, 70 years old. Hard, tough, beer-drinking, bar-brawling guys. As far away from God as you could possibly imagine. And what's she doing? All day long, she's praying for them. She's praying for them. They've wasted 40, 50, 60 years. She's still praying for them. She dies, not one of them is following Christ. She dies, and you know what starts happening? One by one, they start coming into the kingdom. One by one. And they didn't come half-baked. I mean, these guys, these guys got turned around. And I mean, Christ changed their lives, and they're going to let everybody know it. And they didn't care what you thought. And they go walking back into those bars with the big King James Bibles, man. Hey, man, you need what I found in Christ. They didn't give a rip. They all came. Every, every single one of them came. So you say, well, my kids are away from the Lord. Well, get, go on. Just let God work. Let him work. Uh, how blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with the enemies in the gate. All right, let's go to the next song. You guys still with me? All right. Now, once again, I want to say this. Are children a gift of the Lord? Yeah. Boaz didn't have it. He didn't have kids. This was a big deal back then. It was huge. Look at Psalm 128. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine. Hey, listen, this guy had land, this guy had crops, but when he would eat of the fruit of his hand, it wasn't well and it wasn't happy with him because he didn't have a wife and he didn't have kids to share it with. He was eating by himself on a TV tray watching the Rangers, <laughs> so to speak. Okay? Now, a lot of guys say, oh, I just want to be by myself because they're narcissistic and they're self-centered. But listen, you're a man. Unless God's called you to singleness and given you that gift... Um, it's a godly desire to be married. It's a godly desire to raise, raise up children and to have grandchildren. That's a godly thing. It's a masculine thing. It's a holy thing. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine. He doesn't have a wife. How old is this guy? He's maybe 40? Well, you know what? He's getting, he's getting, he's getting up there. Uh, can I say this to you? Because he was a godly man, I think this was a desire that he had. It would have been abnormal for him not to have had this desire. He's got a lot of stuff. He's been blessed by God. But this is what's missing in his life. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children like olive plants around your table. Nobody's around his table. 
Watch this. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. He feared the Lord, but this had been withheld. You know, guys, um, we go through chapters in life. We go through transitions. For some reason, when I was 18, 19, 20, for some reason, I don't know why, I thought a lot about being 40. Now, why did I do that? I don't know. I just did. But I'm looking at life, I'm figuring life out, and I'm in college, I'm looking around, and I'm thinking, I, this is true, I thought, you know what, I look forward to the day that I'm 40. Because as I looked at life, it seemed to me that when a guy hit 40, he was pretty much hitting his stride. You know, in the 20s, you're learning a trade, your business, whatever. You're making your way, you're getting you know, married, you're doing all this stuff. And in the 30s, you're kind of getting your, becoming your own man and all this stuff. But when a guy hits 40, you're kind of halfway through life. You're kind of hitting your stride. You kind of are figuring out who you are. Those ought to be the productive years, I was thinking, you know, 40 to 60. 60, you get old. I don't think that anymore, but I did then. When I was a young guy, I thought a lot about being 40. I'll be honest with you, I never thought a lot about 50 or 60. I never did. Uh, now I'm 60. I'll be 61 here in a few days, which I know is shocking to you because of my youthful and trim appearance. <laughs> I'm telling you, that Botox works, Larry. <laughs> Not necessarily. And how would you know that it doesn't work, Brad? Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Anyway. Uh, you know, I used to think a lot about 40. Now I'm 60, I look back. 40 was a long time ago. I look back over my life, I see chapters as you do. And you know what I see? Uh, as you go through life, uh, here's what I see. About every 10 years, you hit a major transition. Say you're 20. Well, you've been in college or, let's say you're in college. Well, you're about ready to get out of college. You can't keep living like that. You think an 11 o'clock class is early. <laughs> that's not early. That's lunchtime. See, college isn't real. College is insane. So, you know, you're 20, 21, 22, you're going to get out of there and you're going to have to go get a job. Hey, and you take this and then you say, well, I don't like this, and you try this and you try this, and then, then you hit 30 and you got a wife and kids and you got a mortgage and you get pains in your chest and you can't breathe at night. See, it's great being a man. Suddenly you got all this responsibility, you got all this pressure on you. And then you're going through your 30s and all of a sudden you look up in your 40. And at 40 he goes, oh my God. See, we call it midlife crisis. See, about every 10 years you got a transition. About every 10 years you're hitting a different level. I remember thinking a lot about being 40. I never thought about being 50. I was shocked when I hit 50. That's a whole different set of stuff than when you're 40. And then 60 is a whole different set of stuff. Being in 60, my, 60, my grandpa was 60. I'm 60. And there's a whole different, I'm thinking a whole different set of stuff than I was thinking at 40. Every time, here's where I'm going with this. Every time we hit a transition, and we know there are phases of life. You're thinking about the next phase of life, and as you're transitioning into that next phase, here's what we try to do. We try to equip ourselves with certain things that will enable us to transcend and uh, uh, walk through the transition with a minimum of difficulty and equip us to handle the next phase of life with a minimum of difficulty. That's what we try to do. That's not bad. Let me tell you what I've noticed with men who are following Christ. I've noticed with men who are following Christ, as they go through different transitions, and they're hoping to have this and this and this to equip them to navigate the next transition, I've noticed it's not unusual for those things that other men have that would enable them to navigate the next transition. I've noticed Oftentimes, God will strip them of those things and not allow them to have them that other men have. 
Not always, but sometimes. Why is that? Oh, he wants me to trust in him. He wants me to trust. What I'm trying to say to you is at certain points of life, as you're, getting, as you're going through life, as maybe you're preparing for the next phase, you're going to be missing a major piece that you think you need. Might be your health. Might be uh, your portfolio that's just shattered. But I don't know. I don't know what it is. But don't be surprised. Hey, don't be surprised today if you look around and you've been thinking all day, you know what? I'm missing a major piece. Ah, join the club. Well, what does that mean? Oh, that means you're walking by faith. You know how we want to walk? We want to walk by sight. I tell you what, if we had our way, we'd all be in the Fortune 400. I look at the Fortune 400, and what do I think? I think they're all going to die. That's what I think. And I'll tell you what, I look at my bank account, and I look where I am, and I'm going to tell you something, I wouldn't trade places with any of them. Wouldn't trade places with one. And I'll tell you why. Because of Christ, I'm not afraid of dying. I know where I'm going. Not because of me. He's taken away the fear of death. Because, you see, it's not all here. It's not. And so do I go through transitions? Yeah. Does he take away a missing piece? Yeah, but as I look back over my life, every time he's not allowed me to have a missing, a major piece, you know what he's done? He's supplied it. He's done it in a way I could never imagine. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond anything you could ever ask or think. There are times in life as you're hitting this transition, as you're going to a new phase, sometimes, you, you know what happens? And you, you kind of sense, I've got to get ready for this. And, and you know what happens? Sometimes a fog will descend. I grew up in California, Central Valley. And in Bakersfield, anywhere along the San Joaquin Valley, in the winter they'd close school. Not for snow, not for ice. They'd close it because of fog. If you're from California, you know that on Highway 99 in the winter, Tulare, Bakersfield, Shafter, Wasco, whatever it is, Merced, about once a year, you're going to turn on the radio, and you're going to hear there was a crash, and there's 197 cars. And I'm not exaggerating. And they're just piled like accordions into one another. Because when that fog, they call it Thule fog, when it descends into the San Joaquin Valley, you can't see the stripe on the road. You can't see it. Sometimes in our lives, we're getting ready for a transition. We know, we kind of just intuitively know, I'm shifting from here to here, and I'm missing a major piece. Not only am I missing a major feast, uh, piece, but suddenly a fog descends, and you can't see the next step. You can't see the road to know where you ought to go. I don't know if this is making any sense to anybody. But you know that you know some pieces and not only do you not have them, you can't see far enough ahead of you to go get them. See, when there's fog, there's confusion. Can I say this to you? If you're in a fog right now about what to do next, you are right smack in the middle of God's will. Where did that fog come from? It came from him. Yeah, but I don't like the fog. I want to see clearly. Well, you know what? Sometimes he sends a fog. And why does he send a fog? Because he wants you to... He wants you to wait, and he wants you to trust. The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me. Does he not? He leads me. He's out ahead of you. Fog's not a problem to him. Circumstances, what you're missing is not, the Lord is my shepherd. And there was a little phrase that I didn't refer to, but I'm going to refer to it now. Uh, it's really important. The Lord is my shepherd. Watch this. I shall not want. I'm going to tell you something. If you're missing a major piece, he's not missing any of them. And the moment you need it, 
is the moment it'll be there. And it'll show up on a day just like any other. What was Boaz thinking when he showed up at that field, gets the coffee, talking to the reapers? What was he thinking the night before? Was he thinking, I'll never have a family. I'll never be blessed. I'll never have a wife. My best dear. I don't know what he was thinking. I'd sure like to know, and I'm going to ask him when I get to heaven. I'd like to know what he was thinking the night before. She showed up in the field by chance. There is no chance. And God blessed him, and Christ came through his line. So where are you today? Today. There is a plan, and he's weaving the plan. Nothing random is going on. It's all under control. My life's pulling apart, falling apart. No, it isn't, because he holds it all together. He holds it all together. So once again, if that's true, what should we do tonight? Well, let's go home and eat a cheeseburger. Okay? Watch a little sports center. Hang out with your wife. You got kids. Put them in bed. Drug them so they'll go to sleep. (laughs) Just a little joke. And then you go to sleep. Because you know what? He's got you covered. Oh, and he's got you covered in the morning because his mercies are new every morning. We're going to be fine. And you never know when he's going to show up even if you're in the fog. So our Father, we bow, we pray, we acknowledge, we say that we love you, we trust you. Every guy in here is missing some kind of major piece that he needs. That's okay. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. When I need the peace... The moment I need that peace, he'll give it to me. Why would I need it now if I'm not there yet? So I'll trust you. We'll trust you. At the right moment, you'll show it up. That's just what you do. What a great God you are. We are blessed among men to know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.